Blog Talk Radio. In Charlotte, protesters throw rocks and water bottles at police, stomp on and damage vehicles. They block traffic on a major interstate, then grow in intensity. They broke into the back of a, a tractor trailer and started setting items on fire. 16 police officers were injured. One hit in the face with a rock. The riot sparked by the fatal police shooting of 43-year-old Keith Lamont Scott Tuesday afternoon. In an emotional Facebook live stream, a woman who says Scott was her father claims he didn't have a gun, and if he did, the police planted it. My daddy is definitely disabled. What gun he had? He in a damn car reading a book. But the police say a gun was recovered and no book. Mr. Scott exited his vehicle armed with a handgun as the officers continued to yell at him to drop it. He stepped out, posing a threat to the officers, and Officer Brentley Vinson subsequently fired his weapon, striking the subject. The officer, who, like Scott, is African-American, was not wearing a body camera. Other officers were, but no video or a photo of the gun has been released. The incident comes just days after a fatal officer-involved shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that has also drawn scrutiny. Police say officers came upon Terrence Crutcher beside a vehicle stopped in the middle of the road last Friday. That looks like a bad dude, too. His hands are up, but when an officer orders him to the ground, he instead returns to his car. Officer Betty Shelby shoots him. (coughs) The officer's attorney says she was afraid he was behaving oddly and reaching for a weapon, but police say no weapon was found only the drug PCP, and family lawyers say his car window was not even open. We see very clearly on the video that Terrence never made a sudden movement towards the officers or towards going inside of the vehicle. We can see on the video that when Terrence was shot, the officers were not in any imminent harm. Both cases raising the question, under what circumstances is police use of force allowable if an officer thinks a person has a gun? Someone who has the intent to use that gun can use that within less than a second and bring fatal harm to you or another officer or somebody nearby. And so an officer is going to respond to that potential threat with a, a threat of their own. Even if it's not pointed at the officer. Absolutely. An officer does not have to wait to have that gun pointed at them. Now, the officers in both Charlotte and Tulsa are now on paid administrative leave pending investigation. Law enforcement expert Ron Hosko says of the two cases, this officer, Betty Shelby in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is the one most likely to face possible charges because there is no dispute that the man she shot and killed was unarmed. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Make no mistake about it. If you're wondering what you heard, the question tonight in America is what in the world is going on? Police brutality, abuse of power continues on the streets of America. Folks, hang on to your seats. AJC Radio kicks off right now. And I'm Lamont Banks, along with Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and William Williams. Lisa is off tonight, and I'll tell you what, folks, this is a hot topic, if you will, going on in America right now. We 
Talk about not only Charlotte, North Carolina, but Tulsa, Oklahoma, where it has gotten out of control. Tonight we visit this very important topic, abuse of power, not only by police officers, but also people dying in custody across this nation. And I'll tell you what, this is going to be an interesting show. Feel free to dial in to the conversation. The number is 319-527-6216. That number again is 319-527-6216. And I'll tell you right now, folks, this is an epidemic, if you will, happening in America. Continually over and over and over again, young black lives are being taken in a moment and unjustified at that. And uh, again, we're going to get into that conversation. Joining us at the bottom of the hour, Cheryl Dorsey, retired LAPD sergeant, is going to weigh in on this conversation And what we need to do, you know what, conversation, every time we say we need to open dialogue, but our people continue to die. That's something that cannot continue, Dennis, as we talk about this problem and this issue, it continues to be a major problem and a divide, if you will, a racial divide in this country right now. And that is so true. And what's amazing about it is what you can't understand is – how, you know, uh, the, the Washington Mall shooting uh, suspect, how they, they made sure they didn't kill him. So that tells you that uh, hopefully our officers are trained in such a way. I mean, we know how to maim, but it seems that when it comes to black uh, uh, men, you know, men of color, that, that's not in place. It's just shoot, and if you kill him, you kill him. If you don't, you don't. But whatever you do, you just shoot. And it's getting ridiculous because, you know, even with my background, Marine Corps, Army, we're taught to shoot to maim. I mean, deadly force is the last resort. Why is it not a a last resort when it comes to uh, uh, black men or or men of color? It just doesn't make sense. There's something that has to be done about it. Well, I'll tell you what, Dennis. The bottom line is if that that is the M.O. in the military and the threat is far greater, you have – your enemy has a loaded weapon most of the time coming at you, and the directive is to maim. How is that even possible that that, at least mindset, is not on the streets in America? Doesn't make a lot of sense, Cliff, as we get into this. Uh, these are issues that have to be addressed. Yeah, and the, the thing that gets me is, I mean, the thing about, you know, well, you know, it, it, it's time out for the dialogue because every time there's dialogue every time there's talk about it i mean then we get another situation with another black man dead and the cops continue with the same uh the same rhetoric the same speech each time where i felt my life was in danger and the individual who was talking on that clip saying well uh if a if a person has a firearm that a cop should a cop is able to shoot that person even without being threatened that makes absolutely no sense at all. Then what is the open carry law about? So that go. means if you're out and about in public and you have your firearm out, which is the law in uh, in most states in the in the United States, then a cop can just shoot you and say, "Well, I felt that I felt that he my life was threatened, or the life of another citizen was threatened just because this individual had a firearm." That makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't make sense for for me as a citizen 
to say, well, I saw somebody with a gun and I felt threatened, so I shot him. Well, did he point the gun at you? No, he never brandished the gun at me, but I thought that he might, so I shot him. If it doesn't make sense for me as a citizen, it makes less sense for a police officer who's supposed to be trained, who's supposed to understand uh, human behavior, who's supposed to be able to diffuse a situation. It makes no sense for that officer to be able to shoot a person and say, okay, well, he had a gun. In most of these cases, with these black men being shot by the police, there is no gun around, or the gun is in somebody's pocket. You cannot shoot a man five times in his chest and then pull a gun out of his pocket and say, this is the reason I shot him, when the gun was never pointed at you. I'm sorry, that just does not cut it for me. No, absolutely. William, your thoughts on that? Well, you know, the biggest thing uh, that comes to my mind is that, you know, this stuff has happened. We've been seeing this stuff for years. Um, and the, the only thing new has been the, the cell phone. You know, a lot of this stuff now is being caught on video, and if it wasn't for that, a lot of these cases would have would just go by as, you know, police-involved shooting. So when you look at Castillo, you look at, at the others that were caught on video um, with the, the gentleman here recently in Charlotte, um, you know, all these were, were videos that were taken from witnesses um, that were interacting with the cops or saying something you know, moments before the actual shooting took place. And that's the thing I think that really stands out to me the most is because, I mean, we've seen cases. I mean, Rodney King in 91, where we saw video footage of someone, you know, four police officers beating somebody. And, and we've, so we've seen this over and over again. Now we're at the point now we're just saying, look, enough is enough because it's a repeated behavior. Dennis even pointed out that, you know, the man in Washington, they picked him up. The guy that did the terrorist bombing are accused bombing in New York. They, he was in a gunfight with police officers. They shot him. He's in the hospital. The gentleman in Florida that was trying to help the autistic man with his hands up on the ground, no weapon involved, shot in the leg. The gentleman mm. in, in Tulsa, no weapon involved. The One officer, if I recall, tased, tased him while the female officer shot him. There was no, he was not making any advances towards the officers. He was, there was no weapon involved. So when do we say is enough? And when do we realize there is a huge racial bias on the way the police are ha- handle and deal with African-Americans? And, and you know what's sad also, even though, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm truly thankful for uh, social uh, media, media and also the uh, use of cell phones to capture uh, a video. But the, the tragic, the, the thing that's bad about it is that even with the video, I mean, you got video that proves that that this individual did not have a weapon, and still nothing happened. But, I mean, you think about the in the Walter Scott case, Walter Scott is running from the cop. He's, what, 20, 30 yards away from the officer, and the officer shoots him in the back, puts his taser next to him, and then the officer says, I felt threatened for my life. And the video does not tell the story correctly. What kind of crap is that? The video is not telling the story right. So what you're seeing, that's not really what happened. He really wasn't running from me. He was running toward me and threatening me with the taser that he didn't have that I planted on him after I shot him in the back and killed him. How do you you say the video is not telling the story right and then get away with it? That is the kind of – that is the thing right there that called this communities, like in, uh, in North Carolina, that called this communities all over the country to protest, and not only protest, but, but to get to the point where it boils over to a riot, 
because it's like, okay, where and when is the justice coming? Yeah, and I mean, and even even, I think the one case we can all say stands out is Derek Gardner case. I mean, he's standing there with officers choking him. You know, I mean, this was this this was amazing to watch, and they get off. I mean, you see them physically assaulting this man. The man, the officer's arm is wrapped around the man's neck. He's saying, "I cannot breathe," and and then it's over. It's done, and they walk away. They walk away, and even if I remember correctly, the uh, NYPD released a statement that said they had banned the use of of uh, choke holes and excessive force like that a while back. Okay, so now it's being implemented. Implemented on this man causes him to die with video footage, and these guys walk. Well, it's absolutely unacceptable, and. Uh... We're going to dig into that conversation tonight, uh, as well as deal with the number of deaths in custody. And I heard a gentleman last night on the news uh, when I was actually uh, getting things ready, and he made the statement. He said, well, people don't understand about the people that are being abused by the abuse of power in county jails by officers. Sheriff, sheriffs, in most cases, deal with the county jail. Says that the, what people forget is that these people coming in haven't been convicted of anything. Wow. They haven't been found guilty of anything. That's true. Even if you had probable cause and they have a gun, they have not been proven in a court of law, not even close, to due process. And you decide, and you heard the gentleman in the helicopter make the statement, he looks like a bad dude. (laughs) He made that statement from the air, and the man simply walked back to his truck. And here's here's the key that you got to deal with. The officer had done a perimeter check around and in the vehicle at the time when they saw the abandoned vehicle, which means that's why she was charged. You check the vehicle. So, you know, even had he been returning to his car, the windows were rolled up. The windows were up. So how could he possibly be reaching for a gun that you just cleared prior to these acts (laughs) happening? That's right. That's right. But she said that officer in Tulsa by her own admittance, said that she fired that shot because, uh, you know, in, in essence, she panicked, said, I, was, I, I, I got afraid. I'd never been that afraid in my life. And where did the fear come from? From just the fact this is a black man. You know, the, the car had been cleared. Nothing had been going on. He, he already told them, yeah, I don't, I don't need y'all here. Just leave me alone. I'm, my car is broke down. I'm having a bad day. Leave me alone. But then it turns to, oh, that looks like a bad dude. He's on something. She shoots him because she's scared. And and now, yeah, she's been charged. But how many times have we seen before that an officer's been charged? Come back. Now, now she, she's already set the stage. I was in fear for my life. He did, he may not have had a gun, but he was much bigger than me. I thought he was going to pick me up and, and snap me or bite my head off or something. Because they think it's seeming, it seems like, like, an, like, yeah, like they, blacks they, are they, animals. They, right. It's like, it's like a black man is an animal. He, he's out of control. He's some type of monster. He must be bulletproof because I got a pumping full of lead to put him down before before he charges because guaranteed he's coming. To get, that is the mindset is that. You're going to be attacked if you if you have to confront a black man in public. And well, it is it is sickening. That's not true. And, well, well, unfortunately, today they came out with the background check on uh, the gentleman in North Carolina, 
making him look back, yep. said that there was a domestic violence issue that he uh, said, told his wife or whatever that he had, you know, he was a killer. He had a gun. They brought all of this in the news today and it changes not one thing. And this was before he had his accident where the brain damage and stuff occurred. And they said, well, he has a very lengthy. It's amazing to me how they want to focus in. They had a domestic violence case. And his wife uh, apparently dropped the charges uh, shortly after uh, this happened and nothing came of it. But they felt a need to bring that to the media to say, look, this was a violent man. This was a man who had actually got caught. The police called on him for hitting his little boy. All the this is how they dressed it up today, and that's what they do every time. Every time they they turn the victim into uh, into a criminal and turn the police officer into a hero, some kind of way. Now this man is disabled; he has a traumatic brain injury, and you still turn him into a monster, saying he was dangerous. That's the reason that we went got and 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 this uh, you know the dialogue they're saying. Well, he was in the car. Uh, you know, rolling a, a marijuana joint. How do you know what he had in his car? How do you but, know he had marijuana well, by looking through well, his window? Well, the thing is, he they weren't even looking for him. They right. were there to to actually looking for another person of interest. Away from the vehicle. Away from the vehicle. He just so happened was sitting in the parking lot of the apartment complex. The school bus what, to come back. Yes. So he was minding his business. Right. In the car. He was not showing or being a threat to anyone. He was not out of his car doing anything, waving a pistol or anything. They can say whatever they want to. They can say whatever they want to. The bottom line is, at the point in which this incident took place, he was not a suspect. He was, they had not done any crime. They were not looking for him. He was not opposing any threat to himself or anyone in the community. He was perfectly fine, at peace, minding well, his business. Well, if you see the video that they finally decided to release... Even upon exiting the vehicle, he was not aggressive. He was walking very slow backwards. Again, I, I missed the point that if he seemed to show any type of threat, which he did not, what is wrong with your taser to put him down? Exactly. What is wrong with non-lethal force? You don't have to kill the guy. And you're, you're right. They're issued these things. They're issued pepper spray. They're issued a baton. They are issued a taser. These are less lethal means to subdue if, that is, if, if that is needed. If that is needed. I mean, you know, I mean, look at it simply. They're giving handcuffs to, to restrain somebody when they're down, okay? That's not used to actually, you know, restrain them. But, you know, these are things to kind of get somebody in the situation where you can, you know, handle them, de-escalate the situation. Why is it the first thing you do? You reach for your hip and you go for your nine millimeter. I mean, what is this? Is this is this the old west? And, you know, and, and media. Uh, I'm so which media just does not help at all. It's to me. It's you know they're not looking for the truth. You know what they're looking for is let's find a way to assist our heroes who 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 killed this man. Let's find a way to make it look as though that this individual was so bad let's paint him as a monster that way society says yes he deserved to die i heard i heard i was i was listening on tv and i heard this one reporter i don't know if he was a reporter but he was you know an activist 
for the police department, and he said that that kill was a good kill. I'm like, wow, that almost sounds like you, you're hunting. You know, you're with your partners, you got the shot, you're like, oh, man, that was a good kill. And, that's, and, and to me, it was like almost like saying that that was a good kill. You know, hey, you got another uh, bad uh, black off the street, that's a good thing. Oh, that's exactly what it is. Uh, African-American young men are being hunted, and the predator is law enforcement. We'll deal with that issue on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of AJC Radio and a campaign that we have started that is underway entitled Spotlight on Capitol Hill. This program is new to AJC Radio, but it is an exciting time when we take a few moments every Thursday evening to highlight members of Congress, their initiatives that are not only important to them, their constituents, and the nation as a whole. We invite you every Thursday to tune in to AJC Radio to hear your congressman or your senator and their initiatives that are here to shape a nation and to bring about change. We invite you cordially, and as we fight for justice, as we seek justice daily, we'll come together as not only the American people. Join us every Thursday for Spotlight on Capitol Hill. God bless you, and as always, God bless America. A Bart police officer who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Grant footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only going to make it worse for us. They killed our young you can protest, you can try to make a change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and that we're aware that stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice and making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live and get along as one. Violence is not just Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. for equality. I stand for individuality. I stand for peace. I stand for diversity. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. Red, yellow, black, white. We're all the same color. When you turn out the lights. The 
racial composition of the prison population in the United States is very different from the population at large. If people are worried about inequality in America today, I think this deserves more attention in the discussion. Racial inequality in the criminal justice system gets ignored because it doesn't affect most people. In 2010, over 1.6 million people were in state and federal prisons within the United States. So 497 out of every 100,000 Americans were in jail, about half of 1%. Less than 1%. It doesn't seem very large, but when you separate that population by race, you recognize that the personal effects of the criminal justice system are very unequally shared throughout our society. Whites make up 64% of the total population, but only 31% of the incarcerated population. Blacks represent 14% of society, but 36% of the prison population. Hispanics are 16% of America, but 24% of the American prison population. Less than one in 100 Americans are currently in jail, but for some races, genders, and age groups, that ratio is a lot larger. For example, if you're young, black, and male, it's closer to about one in four. That means you'd have a higher probability of going to jail than of getting married or going to college. These results are unequal and problematic as poor black communities lack so many of their members. But what can be done? The causes of this trend are undoubtedly complicated and multi-causal. But there is reason to suggest that part of the blame is our criminal justice system itself. In the ways police officers enforce laws, in the ways that laws are written and prosecuted, and more. In many cases, it is not overt racism by individual actors. Many police officers, prosecutors, and judges are undoubtedly trying to be fair and trying to do the right thing. But economics can explain how unequal enforcement of the criminal law happens anyway. This is because the political and bureaucratic structure of the criminal justice system creates perverse incentives. The formal laws surrounding drug prohibition, for example, are written as if to be colorblind. But people with different levels of wealth face different costs and benefits to participating in the drug trade. Different groups consume different drugs at different rates and... Lastly, those groups are politically represented in very different quantities. Thus, they are arrested and incarcerated at very different rates. How could minority groups hope to use the political process to fix inequality when they are systematically over-incarcerated and disenfranchised? Despite noble intentions, politics often does not affect the basic incentives of costs and benefits faced by political or citizen actors. We might need a new approach to social change if we are going to address these problems. We definitely need more study into the causes of inequality, and we should admit that radical changes might be both necessary and preferable to the status quo. And welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight we are dealing with a very serious topic, police brutality, accountability, you name it. You put it on the table, folks. We're going to deal with it tonight. It may be the appetizer, the main course, 
or perhaps a little dessert, but we're going to cover every topic tonight on this issue as we deal with the abuse of power by law enforcement in America. And the problem seems to continue getting worse, and we must continue to address these issues. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and William Williams. And we're going to get into conversation tonight as we have been talking here uh, in regards to the issues at hand, uh, and they continue to be problems in this country. Uh, joining us shortly is going to be Cheryl Dorsey. Uh, and I'll tell you what, she's been on this show before and brings a lot of insight uh, to the issues uh, that we are dealing with in America as far as law enforcement and the abuse of power. Uh, and we're going to get into that here momentarily as well. We want to first, before we go there, uh, actually send out our condolences to uh, the Fernandez family and the passing of Jose Fernandez, uh, the Major League Baseball player out of Florida, from Florida Marlins, who passed away uh, this past weekend at the age of 24. Uh, and our thoughts and prayers go out to his family uh, in that tragic loss. And uh, I'll tell you what, it lets you know what's important in life, and you just never know. And I guess the entire sport world and all sports uh, in all walks of life, are mourning the death of this young man. And, uh, again, our thoughts and condolences to his family and uh, those that have been left behind. Uh, so, again, William, we were talking before the break uh, in regards to uh, the the abuse here seems to be growing. Uh, no matter how many protests, no matter how many things that are going on, we continually see this thing spiral out of control. And, uh it, this seems this is very discouraging in a country that seems very much divided right now in America. Yes, it is. I mean, we're we're dealing with racial divides and those that that try to act like and believe that it's not there. Um, it's very very much so there. Um, and so now we're seeing more and more um, with social media capturing these events that people can see. Uh, they really are seeing firsthand what's happening um, across the country. And, and I think what it, what it does is, and what it should do, is ask ourselves, number one, how long this has been going on, because this is not new. And number two, what else is going on that is not being captured? You know, what other cases are going on? What other situations are taking place in our country today where our law enforcement is abusing its power, is overstepping its bounds, Violating somebody's uh, you know civil rights, you know what what is not being captured? Because see, we're only seeing well, you know what social media is presenting. I mean, we saw we've seen so much in the past couple of years with police officers. I mean, one of the one of the cases that come to mind was a case with the little girl in uh, in um, in Texas where a police officer came up to the pool party and he manhandled the girl. And that was caught on video. Uh, I mean, these are these are situations. So it, it you know. If I was a father, you know, how that would make me feel, you know, that my young daughter is at a pool party and, and this police officer is physically abusing her. I mean, he threw her down to the ground and she's in a bathing suit. And, and uh, I mean, most people saw those videos. But, right. but so, so you think about what are we missing? You know, what, what, what is going on that is not being caught on, you know, cell phones? No, no, absolutely. Go ahead, Nana. And, and you know, as, as we were talking, I want to make sure the audience understand that uh, – we truly understand that we we have good police officers out there, and that uh, a lot of the officers out there are doing good, you know, doing good things. But we, we can't stop 
looking at what's going on in our communities with with black uh, young black men and, and and people of color. Uh, but what we need is we, we we're trying to make sure people are aware that everybody has to come together. Those other police officers that are doing it right. There, somebody has to be held accountable. And until we start holding uh, these police officers that are doing it wrong or, or you know, jumping the gun, you know, so eager uh, to, to use their weapon to say, hey, I got my first kill. I mean, we got to do something as a community, as a nation to come together and say, OK, we're going to start holding you accountable. And I tell you, any police officer that comes on after that, they're going to see that there is penalties to pay. When you do it wrong, and I think we need to definitely put that out to everybody. No, absolutely. And, and you know, I was talking to somebody this week, and and they made a good analogy. I thought uh, that it would apply. I mean, we see this happening with, um, you know, black men in America being taken down police by police officers. And you know, he asked me. He said, he said, what would happen, and what would be different if you had police officers shooting down young white women? Wow. If if the amount of video footage that we saw with young white women being chased by a young white woman gets chased by a cop shot in the back and then the cop throws the taser down and says she she took my taser. The cop tell the young uh, young white woman, get out of your car. Her hands are down and he shoots her anyway. Or Mm. or, Or a cop has a young white woman walking back to her car. And then shoots her right there in cold blood. Then what would be the outcry wow. of the U.S. Guarantees yes. those police officers would be held accountable. And so if that is mm. the case, then our, what that tells me is that our country, America, sees the life of one individual more valuable, than more important than another. And namely, they see a white life more valuable than a than a young black man's That's life, true. and that that is that is a harsh statement. But it's, it's a true sad one. to say, yeah. but it is true. It yeah. is the reality. Is. No, absolutely. And I'll tell you right now, uh, one thing that stood out. We're going to bring Cheryl Dorsey on, uh, a friend of AJC Radio, a uh, retired uh, LAPD sergeant. Uh, we're going to bring her on and get her insight on this. And Cheryl, are you with us? I'm here. Yes. Thank you for having me. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. You're a busy lady these days, and we appreciate you gracing our station uh, tonight with your insight uh, to talk to our listeners about what in the world is going on in America again. It doesn't seem too long ago we had this discussion. We're back here again. Uh, I'll let yeah, you Yeah, it's unfortunate, you know, but I say the police are the gift that keeps on giving, right? I mean, there's no end to this. And with each atrocity, we think, okay, so that was really, really bad. They cannot outdo themselves, and yet they do. And, and you know, Cheryl, they, they have the same dialogue each time. Uh, my, I felt my life was threatened, the life of a fellow officer. And then, and then this, uh, you know, this, this thing about, and I heard you on CNN addressing them where they're saying, well, Mr. Scott had a gun. We found his fingerprints on it. It was loaded. Well, there, there's two issues with that. First off, having a gun is not enough for police to shoot me when I'm in an open carry state. And the second issue is how easy is it for the cop to, to put a gun there, to put your hand on it, rub your blood in it? Why have we not seen the body cam of the officer who took the fatal exactly. shot? Because that would give us the real – that is the look that we need is to see that officer's body cam and see what he saw – when he was looking at Mr. Scott. Your thoughts, Cheryl? 
Well, here's the thing. I mean, um, there's so much wrong with that. But, I mean, th- so let, let me start with this. These were plainclothes officers who typically are not uh, suited up with uh, body cameras. And so, uh, which is very different from, you know, uniformed officers. And I, I guess going forward, that's something police departments are going to have to figure out. What are you going to do for those officers that are in a plainclothes capacity, you know, which is typically, you know, jeans and, and, a, and a T-shirt until you get ready to be uh, identified as a police officer, which is what these guys did. They left, threw on their vests, and then came back. So uh, when, when do you don this body camera if you're in plain clothes? But for me... This whole thing is problematic because this is what I understand, having heard the very detailed and lengthy statement read by the police chief on Saturday, is that these officers were part of a team, I envision, uh, based on my years of experience, uh, part of a team, they had a post, and they were in an unmarked vehicle in plain clothes, just blending in with the environment. I imagine their vehicle probably had limo tent on the windows, and so I think that Mr. Scott was probably totally unaware of their presence. They were sitting in their car on their uh, stakeout location, and they observed him involved in some activity. And I think it would have been better for them to have radioed to a uniformed officer who would be equipped with that dash cam and body cam video, tell them whatever it is that you're seeing and let them come in and deal with whatever is going on. And that way you don't blow your cover. You can direct them in. Nobody knows you're even there. You maintain your position because now when you leave as a supervisor manning this operation, I don't know that you're gone. And whatever I had you watching, you're no longer watching. So that's a problem for me as a supervisor. And when the police chief says that they saw criminal activity occurring that was so significant that they had to leave and take action, that's cold talk. He's trying to justify something because if it was so significant, why would you leave? Because while you're gone, he could have very well left. Mr. Scott could have very well hurt somebody. So why would you leave? Wow. True point. And, True point. And the, the issue with, you know, them saying, oh, well, he had a gun. Now, in, in uh, Mrs. Scott, uh, in her video, you don't see a gun at Mr. Scott's feet when the police shoot him. You don't see a gun, uh, you know, in the limited video from the police with the, with the body cam when the officer runs up to him. So where is this gun? Well, where does it suddenly appear from? When when the police uh, chief comes in and says, yeah, he had a gun, the gun was loaded, well, why is it we cannot see that in any of the video that has been shown? Well, and, well you and know I what? Think Let me say this. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I've looked at the video, and I, I, I don't know, but I, it, it looks like at one point to me, because he has an ankle holster, and I've been communicating with some other police friends of mine on social media, and it looks like um, as he steps out of the car, it almost looks as if he's raising his pants leg or his right pants leg is already somewhat raised, and it looks like there is an ankle holster on his leg. And if he had that ankle holster on there all along, and the officers, remember, they're undercover, they're secreted in that environment, he does not know that they're there. And let's say that he had gotten out of the car because he comes there every day to pick up his son, and he does the same thing all the time. He gets out the car, he goes to the trunk, he smokes a joint, he does whatever it is that he does, and they're watching him. So they know he has a gun because, remember, when they come in, the first thing we hear them yelling is, drop the gun, drop the gun, drop the gun. You're seated in a car. Where would I drop it? What am I going to do with it? I'm sitting in a car. So he steps out of the car. They know he has a gun, allegedly. 
And if that is an ankle holster that we see, okay, so you see him with a gun. Like you said, open carry state. Fourth court, uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals says someone carrying a gun does not give the police the ability to even stop and search him. The mere possession is not probable cause to deal with him. So what was that criminal activity that was occurring that was so exigent that they had to leave, suit up, come back, and engage him? It's problematic from start to finish. No, absolutely. And, and again, going back to the video, and this is why the mistrust, uh, Cheryl, is there in the communities. Because, you know, again, the uh, video cam from the wife's phone but they were they were brought this up on on CNN as well. You could see no gun when he was laying down, actually already shot. And then later they show him laying down on the ground and a gun in that area that was not there when he initially went down. That is what raises the question: What is going on? And like you said, if he's in an open carry state, and we raised this issue last week, now I'm going to be punished. Because the law tells me I can carry this, and then, but if a cop sees it, he has a right to shoot me because he feels threatened. Well, what good is the law? But I could tell you this. I could say uh, the law, and this is sad to say, but it's true. Does the law apply to that black young man? It does not. I don't care what nobody say. You know, and then, you know, I hate the thing. Where, you know, they come on, the media come on, and all of a sudden they're telling black people how they should act when a police approaches them. But that should be the same, whether regardless of your color. Uh, how, how do you react? Uh, you pulled me over. What you want me to do? I don't, know if the, I, I don't know if I should put my hands in the air now because they kill them. You're getting killed if you put your hands in the air. I don't know if I should keep my hand on a steering wheel. I don't have a, what do you want me to do? I don't know because either way, if you look at the recent uh, deaths, they've, they've been killed sitting there, even speaking to them saying, hey, I have no gun, and you still die. What do you do? Well, you, what do you do, Cheryl? Well, here's the thing. There's no right answer, right? Because... Well. Anytime a police officer discharges his weapon, and he should not have, immediately he's crafting, what am I going to say? Oh, my God. What am I going to say? And so we, we see this young lady with uh, Terrence Crutcher. Mm-hmm. She fires her weapon, and she realized she messed up because then nobody else there fired no gun. She's the only one firing a weapon. And then what does she say? I was more scared than I've ever been scared in my entire life, and I thought my partners were about to be hurt by this big, bad dude. Well, we know that that's a lie because we know, based on what they have reported, that she had already been up to his vehicle. She had already cleared it, which means she looked in it. She rendered it safe. There was nothing in that vehicle that would hurt her. So him going back to it was not a problem. But they they can't admit wrongdoing because each of these agencies, like all the ones before, know that there is a civil suit coming. And so they are trying to mitigate and minimize the buckets of money that they are going to throw at the Scott family because they will throw buckets of money at them. They will change nothing. They will make no differences in the way that their officers are trained. 
and then we will move on, business as usual, until it happens again. Wow. And the thing is, you know, Cheryl, they they have the dialogue going, which, you know, I just found this out with the – with the with the with the current shootings in in Carolina and uh, in Oklahoma, where the the criteria for saying okay, did the cop was this a good shooting or a bad shooting? That criteria is based off of what another police officer felt like they would do in that situation. Well, then where does the public stand. If another cop says, well, you know what, to protect my uh, myself from the situation I may get in, if I shoot me somebody, namely a black man, I'm just going to say, well, you know what, I think that was a good shooting because, sure, he could have felt uh, threatened. She could have felt threatened. This guy could have lunged at her, could have grabbed her by the throat and, and choked her out. How is it that they base the, the uh, you know, basically the credibility of a shooting off if another police officer's says I would have felt the same way in that situation. Then you get cold blue going on where cops are known to protect cops. And that's why you hear the police chief say that there's not one piece of the puzzle that's going to answer the question with regards to the Keith Lamont Scott shooting. We have the video, we have different angles of the video, and then we have that all-important last piece, which is the statement of the officers. And we already know what they're going to say because it is very difficult for anybody to argue with me about what is in my head, if I tell you I'm scared, if I tell you I'm more frightened than I've ever been in my life, how do you debate that with me? And so what needs to happen is, is the officer should be compelled to say specifically what was it that happened that caused you to be fearful. And if you were fearful when you fired one shot, what was it that happened between one and two that caused you to still be fearful? And if you're continuing to shoot, now you're on rounds six and seven. What's going on that makes you still fearful? You see what I'm saying? But there's no requirement for officers to articulate that. They just say, I was in fear. Works for me. That, that's insane. That's just insanity. But this is the world in which we live in today. I want to play a clip for you, sure. I want to get your thoughts on it. A little girl spoke at a city council meeting today in Charlotte. And I'll tell you what, it's heart-wrenching. But this is the impact of injustice and abuse of power that affects even the younger generation. Let's see what she has. Okay. I come here today to talk about how I feel and I feel like that we are treated differently than other people, and I don't like how we're treated, and just because of our color doesn't mean anything to me. I believe that... You're doing great. You're doing a great job.
Go ahead. I've been born and raised in Charlie. And I never felt this way till now. And I gave the other one straight. They just said that our fathers and mothers are killed and we can't even see them anymore. That's right. It's a shame that we have to go to that graveyard and bury them. And we have tears, and we shouldn't have tears. We need our fathers and mothers to be by our side. Wow. If that is not heart-wrenching, and Cheryl, this is the question I pose to you. We said moments ago, this is a young girl who the impact of this type of abuse will affect her probably the rest of her life. <clears throat> How do we fix this? And I'll be honest with you, it seems to be, like you said, we'll go back to business as usual and turn around and say, well, till the next body bag gets filled. What do we do? How do we begin? Well, you know, this is an election year. And um, when we think about how important um, the selection of a president is this year, because not only um, are we going to be tied to this person for the next four years, but whoever is elected is going to have an opportunity to make some very important appointments to the Supreme Court, which are lifetime. And so when you understand that, you know, justices, whether it's the Supreme Court or whether it's local prosecutors, police chiefs who serve at the pleasure of mayors, governors, um, we need to be actively engaged in sending a message to those people who circle the wagons with those police chiefs when they kill our babies, our men, our daughters, and we need to send a clear message to them by way of our vote that we're not having it. Oh, absolutely. Cliff. Yeah, and, and, you know, that brings up a good point, Cheryl, because, you know, they're saying in, uh, in the Keith Lamont Scott case and in other shootings there in North Carolina that a law has been passed that uh, members of the public or anybody for that matter won't be able to see the uh, police held video without a court order and you know i asked how did that law get passed with things like this on the table how does that law make it through that says okay we're gonna basically in essence hide police video unless you go to a court in some kind of way convince a judge who may not have your best interest at heart that you convince him to force the police to turn it over how does that law get passed? And it, it boils down to the people who are in power, the uh, the council member, the city council members. The governor, the, I believe, is the, the one that passed that allowed that law to yeah. come to fruition. Right. And it's well, like it's like how how did the people not say, look, governor, if you pass this law, you won't be governor much longer. You will not have another term to basically force the will of the people 
on the elected officials. And, 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 and so I, you know, I echo what you say. It is about the vote, about basically the people telling these elected officials, if you try things like this on us, rest assured we will use our power of the vote and ensure that you do not have a seat come next term. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I hate to say it, but I, I think sometimes we're our own worst enemy because, I mean, how many how many black people do you know say, my vote don't matter, I'm not voting, it's not going to change nothing, and so they don't. And right. but, but you can best believe those other folks, you know, they've been, they've been putting stuff in place, uh, getting things lined up, you know, for two years ago. I mean, look, look at what they said when Obama was first appointed. They said that their goal during his first appointment was to make sure that he was a one he was a one term president. I mean nice. so on the day after the inauguration, they're already working for four years down the road. So we need to not be asleep at the wheel. Exactly. No, absolutely. And I think one point is and that law goes in, I believe, goes into effect in about six days, uh six or seven days. Uh so the the video was released in this case uh because of the pressure that came as a result of the marches, the mayor calling for this video to be released, the video that we did finally get. Well, I, uh, think, I think it was the family released it first. Well, they had a video, yeah. but the police did yeah, release they uh, finally released it, so uh, the video. Right. So I think it was one of those things that, uh, as you said, Cheryl, these are things we have to address. We have to get the African-American community, but all people, to get out and vote, to say, look, uh, we've known what's been going on this entire election season the divide and the racial things that have just, you know, hampered uh, this country in the last 15 months of nonsense. We began to believe and buy into the rhetoric. If that impact of this killing, and that's exactly what it was, a murder, happened in Charlotte, where a little girl was at a city council meeting saying, I don't want to say bye to my mother or to my father, a little girl. What are we doing as a nation? And if that doesn't cause us to rise to our feet to say enough is enough, I don't know what will. I don't know what will. And we're going to have to be the ones that are going to be the standard bearers because understand, you know, uh, when – and I'm not talking about all police. I'm just talking about those those few that are messing it up for the rest. So I want to be clear. But, you know, when when that few pulls – a black person over, and they look in the car and see a, a, a child, a four-year-old sitting in the back seat and, and becomes frightened by something that the father is doing to the extent that they pump rounds into this vehicle, lets me know that he didn't look at that four-year-old child and think, that could be my daughter. Maybe it's not a good idea to shoot into this car because that could be my little sister. So if they can't relate to us, if they don't connect with us, then – Okay, I don't have a problem shooting rounds, and if one ricochets and hits that little girl, oh well, collateral damage. So we need to make sure that we are doing all that we can do and not sit around and wait for them to make us a priority, because clearly we're not. No, absolutely. And Cheryl, I understand you're on limited time tonight, aren't you? No, I'm good. You're good? Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to take a quick break, come back, get some more insight as we look into, again, problem solving this issue. I want to get your thoughts on some information we talked about earlier and demonizing the victim uh, and bringing up, you know, the gentleman in Charlotte. Today's news report comes out that he uh, had a record, a history of domestic violence and that he 
He, and they quoted a police report where he said he was a killer and he was this and that to take the light off of the corruption that happened here. We're going to get your thoughts on that on the other side of the break. Ladies and gentlemen, feel free to dial into the conversation. The number is 319-527-6216. That's 319-527-6216. And we are joined tonight by Cheryl Dorsey, retired LAPD sergeant. And she's put it down as it is, if you will. We're bringing her right back on the other side of this break as we continue Abuse Behind the Badge. We'll be right back here on AJC Radio. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. What's up, y'all? It's your boy Cam on stage, and I'm afraid I'll be killed by police. Not all police, just one police officer who fears for his life and thinks I have a gun. I'm afraid I'll match the description of someone who called 911. The police will arrive, and before I know it, I'll be dead. Not all cops are bad, but for me, all it takes is one who is afraid for his life, and that leaves me dead. He could have had a pristine record up until that, but if he's afraid that day, that means it's the end for me. He could have been a bad cop his whole entire career and not be afraid. That means the end for me. I used to think this wouldn't happen to me because I'm a law-abiding citizen. I won't ever be doing anything or be anywhere I shouldn't be. I'll comply with officers, but that doesn't always seem to be the case. Here's some examples of what black people were doing when they were killed by police. Selling CDs outside of a supermarket selling cigarettes outside of a corner store, walking home with a friend, missing a front license plate, riding a commuter train, holding a fake gun in a park in Ohio, holding a fake gun in a Walmart in Ohio, holding a fake gun in Virginia, calling for help after a car accident, driving with a broken brake light, failing to signal a lane change, walking away from police, walking toward police, running to the bathroom in your apartment building, walking up the stairwell of your apartment building, sitting in your car before your bachelor party, Holding your wallet, not wearing a seatbelt in police custody, attending a birthday party, laughing. The thing that makes me most afraid is I'll be afraid. I don't know what I'll do if a police officer has a gun pointed at me and is shouting instructions. I'm afraid I'll move too fast, too slow, not fast enough. I'll reach for something he asked me to reach for, and he'll think it's a gun. I'm afraid I won't be calm, and me not being calm could be the end of me. I'm afraid that I can die in front of my wife or children or both. I'm afraid my children will be somewhere without me and suffer the same fate. I'm afraid the police officer will be in plain clothing so they won't even recognize that this is a police officer and they don't respect him and treat him like the authority he is because they don't know he is. And here's what's going to happen if I die. People will comment on a post about me and here's what they'll say. If he would have just done this, he would be alive today. If he would have just done that, he'd be alive today. All you have to do is listen to police and you'll be fine. If he would have just listened to the officer's orders, he'd be here today. If you care so much, why don't you care about what's happening in Chicago? What about black-on-black crime? Don't you care about that? 
The media will find the worst picture of me to use. And since I don't have any brushes with the law or mugshots, they'll find the most menacing or intimidating photo they can use. They won't use any of my wife or children or my family because that doesn't tell the story that they want to tell. Tammy Lauren will get on TV and tell them it was my fault or Glenn Beck or Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh will get on the radio. Fox News will have a field day with me. They'll say we don't have all the facts. The video doesn't clearly show. You don't know. What if he was? It looked like he was. You can't tell clearly. We can't see what's in his right hand or left hand. You don't know what the officers were feeling. The NRA won't protect me or protest my death, even if I say I'm a licensed gun owner and I tell the police officer that when he pulls me over. The video will be posted all over the internet in a matter of seconds, and whether or not you want to see it, you will see my dead body lying on the ground or a video of an officer shooting me or me dying live on Facebook. And then people will say it's not about race. We're all one people. All lives matter. And then... Life will go on. Scariest thing. After a while, life will go on. The officers may or may not get arrested. More than likely, they won't be convicted. More than likely, they won't even be indicted. And before you can totally mourn my death, it'll happen again. That's why I'm afraid. Welcome back. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and William Williams. Lisa is off tonight, and uh, we've been uh, fortunate to have Cheryl Dorsey, uh, retired LAPD sergeant, give us some insight on the condition of a nation with police abuse. And our African-American men continue to die in the streets of America. And Cheryl, I appreciate you joining us, and thank you for being here. Uh, we want to take a, a caller. Cliff, who do we have? Yeah, we have Rose from Colorado Springs. Uh, wants to make a comment. You are live. Yes. Uh, thanks for taking my call, Cheryl. I would like to ask you a question. Uh, we constantly hear now that every time a police officer shoots down a black man, we constantly hear, "I feared for my life." Well. It should not be some type of uh, mental evaluation of police officers and those that are afraid, constantly afraid, uh, or, or that's what they say they are. Should not they, they be evaluated that a man that has fear might do anything and may not even think logically if he's afraid? So why are you a police officer if you're afraid, and why is it that that you want uh, 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 not take uh, his wife's word for the fact, and this is Keith I'm talking about, why couldn't, Why is her, her words totally ignored and she has no value and all they talk about is what the police said. The police said that, she, that he had a gun. The police said she steadily screamed out continuously that he does not have a gun. You're not going to pay any attention. All they say is that the police said she had it. Isn't this, and I know i got about three questions here in one, but isn't this what happened so many years now? They've been killing black men a long time, but before the technology age came on, it's just whatever the police says, that's what happened. In actuality, we're finding out that's not what happened. 
So if they're not afraid, should not they be evaluated at least not to be on the fourth or, or, or at least not to be on the street? Well, you know, certainly I, I think that maybe there are some that are afraid, and I think in some instances there are some that are just using that as a cop-out um, because they messed up and, and they can't admit um, that they shouldn't have shot this person. And, and when you when you find something that works, you stick with it, right? And so we have seen example after example of police officers say, I was in fear for my safety. You know, back in the day when I was a young police officer, it was he was reaching for something. I couldn't see his hands. We don't hear that anymore. They dropped that one. But it used to be I couldn't see his hands, and so if I can't see his hands, that means he was doing something that could have hurt me, and therefore I shot him. Now it's I was in fear for my safety because great deference is given to what a police officer says. We're the authority, and if we say something by and large, certainly juries and judges want to believe what we say. And, again, if I articulate that, it's very difficult for anyone to argue with me that I was not. And so that's why I think, you know, going forward, they should be required to say, well, well what happened in the, in the first frame? Tell me what was going on in the second frame that, that now you're still scared because – if you've shot someone, as in the case of, let's say, Mike Brown, who was hit six times, okay, when you, you shot the first two rounds, Mr. Wilson, he's bleeding. He's a, a child for all intents and purposes, a big one, but he's a, a, a 18-year-old young man. He's bleeding. He's wounded. Why are you still fearful of this unarmed black teenager, Mr. Wilson? for rounds four, five, and six. Why are you still fearful? What was he doing that caused you to still be fearful? And so they're not being held to that kind of a standard. And I was in fear works, so they're using it. Right, right. And and and, and, and that's just come across that really if you're black, you're, what you have to say really don't have any value anyway. But we're going to believe what the police officer says because that's law, and I and I thought the same thing. I thought when, when we first saw that video, there was no gun by that man. But they they showed another video where somebody was kind of a shaded dark look, as if somebody was leaning down to pick up something or put something down. Uh, isn't it possible that that they could have planted that gun there? And also, we don't really know if the DNA is his or not. That's what we're told. Well, if you're white and you say that, then that there's, it must be true. And then his fingerprints is on the gun. How do we know any of that stuff is true? We absolutely don't. And and But for a video, we now know that we wouldn't have known that in other instances. And so when the police chief says that, there are many pieces that are going to fit this puzzle to give us that final look. We know that some of those pieces could be tainted. Some of them could be fabrications. And so you just want us to take your word for it. And so you watch and see at the end of the day, they're going to settle out of court with that family and they're not going to admit guilt because they never do, but they will give that family a large amount of money and then they will continue on. And that will be that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Cheryl. You're welcome, ma'am. Thank you. Hey, Cheryl, uh, this is Dennis. Uh, I have a question. uh, And uh, it's in reference to, I was in the military, and and we used to guard a highly sensitive uh, material. And I can't go no further than that. But uh, we had rules of engagement. 
uh, which which restricted us. We had we had a clause, deadly force, and and deadly force was that force which was used, which which we known which we knew could reasonably cause death or bodily harm, and we could only use that as the last resort. And I, and I'm trying to understand how our military has rules of engagement against an enemy, against someone that could get a hold of something and really cause some uh, damage. But yet our police officers don't have rules of engagement, definitely not when it comes to uh, men of color. Uh, why but, is that? But we, do have, but we do have rules of engagement. We do have a use of force continuum, if you will. Every agency has one. I mean, it may look different. You know, one time LAPD had a pyramid. Then they had, like, building blocks. And so we do have uh, a use of force continuum, and, and police officers are taught and trained. You use only that force necessary to overcome resistance. And then once you've overcome that resistance, then you need to de-escalate. And so we don't see people de-escalating. We see officers escalating, 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 and then deadly force, right? And right. so when they do that, and that's why I said when they do that, they realize immediately, uh-oh. And so now the crafting of the story, the circling of the wagons, the code talk by the chief, the double speak that if you don't have a savvy ear and you hear him say this, even though it doesn't sit right and you're not really buying it 100%, but he's trying to tell you he was involved in criminal activity. I mean, when I was listening to him, I could hardly contain myself, and I was on the set of CNN for five hours on Saturday as this thing was unfolding with this dribbling release of these uh, videos because he says, I'm going to release two of the videos. And when he said that, I said, well, then that means that there's more than two. And why are you only releasing two? Because what's on the other ones that we need to see? And he said, I will show what I can. And so that sounds like cold talk to me. What does that mean? What that you can't, because you're the chief of police. You right. can do whatever you want. I'll show you what's pertinent. That's cold talk to me, because now you're deciding what's pertinent. And he said there was going to be transparency, but then he said transparency is in the eye of the beholder. And so I didn't mean full transparency. I, so it's like, are you kidding me? But he gets to do that because he serves at the pleasure of that female mayor. And I'm just curious to see if six months down the road he still has that position, because he botched this entire dissemination of information about this uh, shooting of Mr. Scott, and that's why there's so much skepticism. And at this point, even for me, he lacks credibility, and everything that comes out of his mouth is suspect, even for me. Right, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the narrative that – see, what they've given the public is this narrative that, well, police are trained when, they, when they're in a situation that, you know, they're not there. They don't shoot to disarm. They don't shoot to maim. They shoot to, to, you know, stop the threat. To us, that, that's not the same thing as, you know, basically de- uh, only, only stop what they see as, as, the, as the force coming forward and then de-escalate the situation. They're basically telling the, the public, well, police are trained to kill. If you have a situation, you're trained, kill, put the person down, and that's the end of the story. Not, not hit them in the chest, not hit them in the leg, not maybe shoot at the weapon, take out a shoulder. No, they give the public the narrative that you are that cops are trained to shoot to kill then. But the real training is you are to only act, uh, you know, violent enough or with enough force to uh, to to stop the force against you and then deescalate the situation. See, <laughs> you you understand what they say 
but they give the public, you know, kind of the spin and the twist on words that make it sound like, well, cops are, are trained that if, if there's a threat, the only thing they can do is basically shoot to kill. They're taking headshots. That is the type of thing right there that, uh, as you say, the, the, the transparency, like this, this police chief in, uh, in, in North Carolina, there's no transparency. And he surely did botch it up because he said, you know, I'm going to show you what I can. You can and should show anything. Exactly. What you're meaning is you're only going to show us what you need us to see. You're not going to show the part that uh, shows that this officer had no, no reason to shoot uh, Mr. Scott. And that is the sickening part about this. And it continues to come up each time a black man is killed in the street by a cop. And, and Dennis mentioned it earlier where they say, well, that's because you black people need to learn how to interact <laughs> with police. Well, that's if I'm true. laying on the street with my hands up saying I'm a counselor, I'm trying to help an autistic person and the cop shoots me and I ask you, why are you shooting me? Well, I don't know if I, if I'm running from a cop and the cop shoots me in the back and then lays a taser on me and say I felt threatened for my life, that's why I shot this man. He was trying to steal my taser. Or if I'm a man standing next to my car and an, and an officer says I felt the most fear I ever felt in my whole life and kills me, so what is the black man? And, and Cheryl, you know, we've met before. You know, I'm 6'5". I weigh about 240. If, if I'm standing up against a cop, my first thing is, you know what? This is just it. I'm getting shot. That's the bottom line. Traffic stop. I'm in the grocery store saying hi. Uh, whatever. There is no interaction with police officers anymore for the black man. Uh, you know, the way, the way that I feel, that is a reasonable interaction. And listen, we know that they can do better because we've seen them do better. There was a mall shooting over the weekend where a young white kid went into a mall, shot five people. They were referring to him as a mass murderer. And guess what? Within 24 hours, they took him into custody. How? With air quotes, out incident. The same wow. way they took Dylan Roof into custody, Adam Lanza, Eric Freen, who had gone on a multi-day uh, manhunt uh, after having shot some state troopers, much like Christopher Dorner did here in Los Angeles. And, of course, when they found Christopher Dorner, they executed him, LAPD executed him, and I don't condone uh, anyone harming anybody, but, you know, Second Amendment, uh, white men are confrontational, argumentative. How many days did those um, armed men sit in that federal facility daring the police to come in, and what did they do? Nothing. Right. So we I mean, know that there's another way. They know another way. They just opt not to use that on us. And then they try to explain it away with, I was in fear. Well, we have the Aurora Theater shooter here in Colorado. You're talking about this man was standing in the parking lot reloading after killing, what, a, uh, 16 people or, or uh, I think it was yeah, 12 people in a theater. He's really loading in the parking lot. He goes in without answer. Then you have the Planned Parenthood killer shot a cop, killed the cop. They still take him in and handcuffs without harm. Say, well, we negotiated him down. Is there a negotiation for the black man unarmed, doing nothing at a traffic stop? I have, uh, I have expired tags, and you kill me for it. That is not pro proper police protocol. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, absolutely. And I'll tell you right now, folks, feel free to dial into the conversation, 319-527-6216. And, Cheryl, you've given some insight tonight 
on exactly the issues that this country faces. And I think, as you said earlier, uh, we have to get out and vote and make those uh, life-changing decisions, if you will, uh, for not only ourselves, for our children, for their children. If the narrative does not change, the body bags will continue to fill. And that's not an option here in America. should not be for any African-American, any person, any human being. Uh, and again, we say we, we know all police officers are not bad. Cheryl, you were one of the good ones. And uh, we got a lot of good ones out there. But the problem is you make it very difficult for the good ones when we, when we remain silent against those that are, are doing it bad and doing it wrong. And that's just not right. And, and Cheryl... Uh, love you to stay with us, but again, we're not going to keep you unless you want to stay with us. We'll continue this discussion on the other side of the break. What's uh, what's on your uh, agenda for this evening, or do we need to let you lose? I'll hang out. I'm here. You got me. Okay, Cheryl, and ladies and gentlemen, that's Cheryl Dorsey, retired LAPD sergeant. Want to come back? I'm going to reflect a little bit back on the Michael Brown case, the Eric Gardner case, to take a look at a pattern of abuse. That continues to run rampant in the streets of America. We're coming right back here as we continue to discuss abuse behind the badge as African-Americans continue to die on our streets. We're coming right back here. This is AJC Radio bringing the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children as they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. We know you care. Now is time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 
change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Around the world. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, 
and William Williams and the Agency Radio team. We've been fortunate tonight uh, to be joined by Cheryl Dorsey. And I'll tell you what, she's been a delight tonight uh, in giving some insight on the problem that faces this nation. And uh, we are dealing with some topics here, uh, Cheryl. And thank you so much for taking time and giving it to us this evening. We really, really appreciate it. We understand uh, just how busy your schedule is. But I guarantee you the information you're giving us uh, as you put it down the way that you do, uh, leaves no question mark in the mind of what you're talking about. Uh, and I think that type of candid conversation needs to be had uh, as we deal with these important issues. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to speak. You know, I I, I feel like, an, you know, it's like in anyone with an addiction. I mean, it's almost like we're having an intervention here, right? I mean, if we, if we don't admit and acknowledge that there's a problem, then there's nothing really to discuss because it's all good. And we know that, that we have a problem. A problem of significant proportion and so let's just be honest about it and I, I mean I, I understand why police chiefs won't because of the liability thing that I spoke about but at the same time if you really want to make things better um, then we just need to have a real candid conversation about what that looks like and if they're not going to be honest about it then we need to be engaged and involved at every level to compel them to do the right thing. No, absolutely, Cheryl. That that makes perfect sense. And uh, we 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 remember an incident. Uh, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, is becoming a more important, I believe, voice uh, in this hour to address these issues. And they've been criticized. They've been put down. But you know what? Every time something happens, it speaks to the why they do what they do, and speak out against. And anytime you speak out against the wrong challenge you. I'm going to take you to a clip right now from uh, former, former uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani that made a comment in regards to the problems our African-American children face. Uh, let's see what he had to say. Uh, the, the reality is we have to look differently at race in America if we're going to change this. Whites have to realize that African-American men have a fear and boys have a fear of being confronted by the police because of some of these incidents. Some people may consider it rational. Some people may consider it irrational, but it's a reality. It, it exists. On the black side, you've got to teach your children to be respectful to the police. And you've got to teach your children that the real danger to them is not the police. The real danger to them, 99 out of 100 times, 9,900 out of 1,000 times or other black kids who are going to kill them. That's the way they're going to die. And when, and when you say black lives matter, that's inherently racist. That's anti-American and it's racist. Well, of course, black lives matter and they matter greatly. But when you focus in on 1% of less than 1% of the murder that's going on in America, you create a disproportion. The right. police understand it and it puts a target on their back. Every cop in America will tell you that if you ask them. The only statement I have, are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I, I find that uh, that whole diatribe is just so offensive, you know, and I, I certainly get um, a lion's share of that kind of foolishness because of the way that I speak. And, you know, people call me a race baiter and a, 
um, I'm anti-cop, I'm racist, you know, why is it that if you speak about something that you don't like, you know, I've got to enjoy maltreatment, and when I speak on it, somehow that makes me wrong? I mean, that's retarded for him to even say such a thing. And the reason that we say, and we know this, why we say Black Lives Matter, is because they don't seem to, right? And so... I'm offended, and, and I'm one of those police officers who is not in agreement with him, so he doesn't get to speak for all police officers. Well, he said if you're black, let me give advice to black people of, <laughs> <laughs> of how they need to raise their children. You're not black. And you how know, are you educating <laughs> us on how to raise our children? They need to teach you as if, come here over here, Johnny, teach little Buck. That this is what he has to do. When were we not respectful to police officers? And, and the thing is, I mean, I tell you, and 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 uh, Cheryl, you relate to this more than anybody uh, else on this panel. I grew up in L.A. I was involved in gangs in the '80s when it was uh, under under Chief Gates in L.A. And I I tell you, and I've been shot at the rival gangs. You know, we were we were going at it, and and that's who I was back then. Yeah, I'm ashamed of it, but that's the way I live my life. But I can tell you that I would much rather see the rival gang coming after me than LAPD. I guarantee you. And 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 the fear was uh, well founded because back then, I mean, it was it was uh, you know no whole bars for cops. You get caught as a black man on street and run from the cops. Yo, you better hope you don't get caught. So for for uh, Giuliani, I'm not going to put the mister on his name, for Giuliani to say, you got to learn to be respectful of cops and be afraid of, you know, the, the, other, the other black boy. That's who's going to kill you. That is that is some of the craziest crap I have ever heard in my life. Now, it's one thing if you say, OK, I'm afraid of a criminal. OK, he's a criminal, maybe a mass murderer. I'm afraid of him reasonably. But you're talking about law enforcement, the person who swore to protect and serve the person with the badge who is supposed to be, hey, little Johnny, when I'm in trouble and there's somebody coming after me and I see a cop, I run to him for safety. And for the black man, the young black boy, it's you better run from the cop because you're more likely to get shot by him than anybody else on the street. Well, and he's saying here your best friend that you grew up with going to elementary school to the park, he's going to kill you. So look out. You send that type of message to inner cities. Unbelievable. We got a call Cliff. Yeah. Yeah. We got uh Rose wants to make another comment about Mr. Giuliani's statement. Go ahead. Rose. You are live. Yeah. You know, he really got the nerve. I just like to put the question to Mr. Giuliani. Uh, did you teach your daughter that was breaking the law when she shoplifted in that store? Don't tell us how to train our children. You first start training yours before you start pointing a finger at some black parent as if we're failing at our job in some kind of way. You'll deal with that with that shoplifting daughter of yours who got off. The police didn't know. When they found out she was your daughter, what did they do? They let her go home. So you don't have the right to tell black people nothing. Thank you. And thank you. And uh, show your thoughts. Well, you know, that just, when he says that and when you understand, you know, what he actually said, it it really refutes the whole notion of um, police officers acting in fear and um, 
overcoming resistance, uh, that person wouldn't comply. Because, you know, what, what I see in, in many of these instances is not someone trying to overcome resistance, but what I see is punishment. I see right. somebody who is um, becoming the victim of what I refer to as contempt of cop, and that is, is as a police officer, as an authority, if I tell you to do something and you don't do it, then there's a price to pay. If I tell you to come here and you don't, then I'm going to show you what happens when you don't obey my authority. If I tell you to put that cigarette out and you don't, then there's a price to pay. If I tell you to stop moving, to quit resisting, and you don't, then there's a price to pay. But listen, that stuff is all inherent to police work, and we're the professionals. And so I get that bad guys don't want to go to jail. Who would? But you did a bad thing, and now I have to take you. And so there's a couple of ways we can do this. And I'm going to have a conversation with you about those choices, and you get to make it, right? Because I don't have a problem putting hands on you, but I'd rather not. And so when it's about punishment, when it's about uh, making someone pay for questioning your authority, then we understand that it has nothing to do with um, black people need to just comply. Because white folks not just complying either, but you're not killing them. White folks are not coming here when you tell them to come here. You know, if somebody runs from me as a police officer, I have two choices. I can get ready to get some exercise and go get you, or I can let you go. I don't get to kill you because you ran. That's not the way we're taught. That's not the way we're trained. And when that happens, there needs to be a consequence. No, absolutely, Cheryl. And I'll tell you what, you know, I believe it was uh, Cliff Walter Scott uh, was, was, I believe he was going the opposite direction of the cop that shot him in the back. Uh, yeah, but what, I mean, four warning was, shots in the back? Yeah, North Charleston, yeah. four warning shots. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, he, eight times, eight yeah, times in the back. Eight warning shots. If you run from, see, and, and that is, that is the narrative that, you know, young black men or, or even older black men, you say, okay, if I ran from you and you shot me eight times, then what should I expect if I stand in front of you? Then how many well, times are you going to shoot me? It, it, oh. it, and, and then you say, well, but you need to learn how to interact with the cops. Well, I interacted by saying I have uh, a, a concealed weapon permit. It is where my license is, but I'm going to get the license and registration out the glove box. Sure, go ahead, sir. And then you get shot wow. in front of your kid. Well, then then what are the rest of the black men to think like, OK, well, your best bet, maybe you should try to run and maybe you'll get away or, you know, you catch the eight shots in the back. So there is not there is there is the uh, I mean, it's a what Giuliani said, it, it's 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 so offensive. But then on the other side, it's also it's an oxymoron. It's like, what are you talking about when you when you say, OK, I tell the cop, look, I'm not doing nothing. I got my hands out, and I'm telling you, you're choking me to death. I can't breathe. What do you do? Put me in the cobra clutch and choke me till I die. Well, that is. Then his statement is. I mean, it's just. It's insane. It's nonsense. Is what it is. Well, sure. I'll tell you what. We'd like to. We'd love to invite you back to our program. Uh, You've added a lot to this show tonight, and we are always happy to hear you and your perspective and. uh, uh, you know, how can folks get a hold of you? What are you doing these days? We know you're all over the place. And uh, 
if people needed to reach you, to reach out to you, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, you can find me on just about any social media platform. You can just Google Sergeant SGT Cheryl Dorsey and locate me. But I'm on Twitter. Uh, that's my Twitter handle, SGT Cheryl Dorsey. I'm on Facebook, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, and so I'm available and accessible. And I just so appreciate you guys giving me an opportunity to um, just speak in a real candid and honest way about these things. I really would much rather, as much as I love you, I would much rather not have to keep doing this with you. (laughs) But it is what it is, and so I appreciate the opportunity. And hopefully I'm saying something that will resonate with someone, and they can share that with someone else, and we can save a life. Because really what I want to do, and I speak the way that I do, is because I want everybody who encounters the police to survive that police encounter. And so you need to be careful. Well, sure. We're doing. We we have a thing here for AJC Radio called "Let's Talk Through a Just Cause," where we invite people to come out and speak to communities. I think your message needs to get to communities and to educate parents, to educate youngsters. Uh, hey, take a look. This is a lady that has been down some roads in in LA, has seen some things, and can educate. Uh, I'm going to reach out to you, on, you know, offline, and we're going to talk a little bit of how we can uh, perhaps work and bring something like that together here. Uh, but we're going to talk to you about that offline, and hopefully uh, we can come to some type of uh, thing starting next spring and kicking something off in regards to that. I think it would be very, very important. That would be amazing. Look forward to it. Okay, Cheryl. Thank you so much for joining us. Have the, a good rest of the evening, okay? Okay, you too. Take care. All right. And uh, there you have it, folks. Uh, Cheryl Dorsey, I'll tell you what, make no mistake about it, putting it down exactly as it has to be. Uh, this is a woman that, uh, uh, you know, L.A., as Cliff, uh, his uh, old stomping ground, uh, I'll tell you what, some things going on there that uh, when you say I'd rather be approached by a rival gang than approached by LAPD, there is a serious problem because uh, that's not some more speech you hear too often of. But uh, we appreciate Cheryl and, and what she's doing in that situation and hopefully – uh, we're gonna, Cliff, uh, probably get an opportunity for Let's Talk down the road next spring, and we're going to talk to her about that and, and educating communities. That's how we get the job done. That's how we solve problems, and that's getting together and talking and having a discussion. Uh, and, Dennis, your thoughts on uh, on Cheryl? Awesome. I tell you, every time we're on the show, uh, every time she's on the show, uh, it's very insightful. I mean, we learn a lot. Uh, we get a lot of insight from a former police officer. Uh, that's truly tell it tell it like it is, and I mean that's that what that's what needs to happen. We need to be honest and candid, and we need to be straightforward. We need to let people know that we have feelings, that there are some issues that we we totally disagree with, and in order to 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 make a change, we we got to cry aloud, spare not. I mean that's how you got to do it. No, absolutely, and these are things that uh, we uh, no without question have to address. Uh, in these trying times that America is facing. Ladies and gentlemen, it's very important that you get out and vote. Uh, It is critical, and we're getting ready to go to the last segment of our program. But before we do that, uh, we bid a very special farewell to a golf legend known as the King, Arnold Palmer, which who was a golfing legend uh, more than any other, was largely responsible for the explosion of interest in the game in the 1960s, the sports world in America and the world lost a legend. We bid him a very farewell, a very dear farewell, if you will, uh, for all he's contributed to the game of golf and to all those that love its game. 
but it was Palmer's aggressive technique, cavalier style, good looks, and charisma that made him such a popular figure. It has been said that people would rather see Arnold Palmer score in 80 than other golfers in the low 60s. He was cherished, and he was loved. And we say goodbye to the king, who they called the king. Rest in peace. We'll be right back. I stand for equality. I stand for individuality. I stand for peace. I stand for diversity. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. Red, yellow, black, white. We're all the same color. When you turn out the lights. I'm Chase Crawford. Hey, what's up? It's Usher. Hi, I'm Rachel Wilson. I'm Hayden Christensen. I'm Peyton Manning. Hey, we're Fall Out Boy. I'm Dude Archuleta. I'm Corbin Blue. I'm Kristen Bell. And we're the Jonas Brothers. Do something good for your community. Reuse bags and bottles and always recycle. Help us collect a million pounds of food. Help people prepare for natural disasters. Do something about homelessness. Anyone could be a rock star in their community. So then do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. Visit dosomething.org to find out how. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We talk a lot on this program about injustice. The foundation of that injustice started with one case. And they are six men known as the IRP6. Injustice at levels that you cannot begin to comprehend. Due process violated while these six men languish in prison for four years now. Who are they? Dave Zappolo. Demetrius Harper, David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Gary Walker. We call them heroes of a nation. What happens now is what you didn't know about the IRP-6. A just cause has found something very interesting. A playwright by Judge H. Lee Sarrigan about the RMP6. It starts right now. Take a look. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. My name is Gary Walker, and I'm serving a sentence of 11 years in the same prison. Just to decide, not only were the six of us all devout members of the same church, there was not a single criminal charge or conviction among any of us until these unbelievable events unfolded. My name is Clinton Stewart, and I'm serving a sentence of 10 years at the same prison in Colorado. It's fitting that we live and work together that we should end up dying together because that is what prison is for us and our families. I am Kendrick Barnes and I am serving a seven-year sentence at the same prison in Colorado. 
I was the chief information officer at IRP Solutions, the name of our company. I testified, and then Gary objected. A Donnybrook broke out because Gary said our Fifth Amendment rights had been violated by compelling us to testify. The judge said she had not said anything of the kind, and we demanded the transcript. We were all absolutely unanimous in our verbatim version of what she had said. She denied production of the transcript for that day and at the time, some 200 pages, but assured us that they would be produced at the end of the day. Transcript of that particular conversation in the courtroom between us and the judge has never been produced. I am Demetrius Harper, and I'm serving a 10-year sentence at the same prison. And then in June of 2009, four years later... They finally got a grand jury to indict her. This time, they only called one witness, an FBI agent. And the old adage that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich was proven. This is a production that sets the bar and takes a sincere look at the RP6 story. Judge H. Lee Serkin, retired federal judge, felt compelled to say something. We will not remain silent. To see the full story, the full playwright of the RP6 tragedy, go to YouTube, search the race card. You don't want to miss it. Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. It's strange to me. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? Mm. And then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. What we have learned is that the RP6 story was supposed to be the American dream is an American nightmare. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. Um, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news. Every week, you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. And this is a unique case in the sense that you have six men, six businessmen that have been wrongfully convicted. You would think the media would jump all over it. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to send to. Is this happening in America? The American dream of the RP6 has turned into a nightmare, crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. 
Ladies and gentlemen, go out to change.org, sign the petition now. America's future depends on it. And there you have it. What you didn't know about the RP6, ladies and gentlemen of America, make no mistake about it, injustice is running rampant in America. But namely in Colorado, six businessmen, IT professionals, were wrongfully convicted for a crime that they never committed. Who are the RP6? We call them heroes, patriots of America, who sought to keep America safe. Their names are David Sapolo, Demetrius Harper, David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Gary Walker. These men developed software as a unit, as a team, to keep the homeland safe. But as we are on the brink, if you will, of problems within law enforcement in this country trying to figure out cases, the software created goes from every local to the highest, from local to the highest level of law enforcement and federal law enforcement at that. And William, we were talking last week about how that the software was designed to put the pieces of a puzzle together of a crime scene. Recap that for our listeners and explain a little bit more about that, the sophistication, but the simplicity of that software. Well, we were talking about the software known as Silk. Uh, this is software that the, the gentleman created. And what it actually, one of, the, one of the features that it has is actually the crime scene management, which actually helps law enforcement inventory elements of a crime scene. So as you can imagine, if you're watching your favorite uh, you know, police show or something like that, when they approach a crime scene, a lot of evidence is there. They're trying to, trying to get everything blocked off so they can catalog each little piece take pictures, try the best that they can to gather all these artifacts. But we've seen in times past that, you know, evidence is lost. Things are, you know, they are, are swept under or maybe looked over. This allows them to actually take pictures of, of, of the crime scene, gather the evidence, gather these little pieces, catalog it, have all of it assigned to the case. So, so they can basically go into Silk itself and look at pictures of the crime scene, look at pictures of the actual evidence itself, and go through this whole recreation process of recreating what could have happened, what could have transpired there. So for local law enforcement, you know, that's, happened, that, that's dealing with either a murder or they're dealing with a burglary or, or something along those lines, anything. Or a police shooting or an African-American police. in the street. Absolutely, where there was a rumor of a book and there were a firearm. And what was going on in the car? Absolutely. So, so in this case in Charlotte, the, the the crime scene stays pristine. They take photos of it. They take catalog, you know, the items. They would say, here, this was the book. This was the gun. Or these were the pieces. This is what he had in his hand. This is the photo of the floorboard of the car. This is the photo of the seat. That you know, so they can actually recreate everything. All the evidence awesome. is there. And they'll have it for this case. They'll actually get uh, photos of the cases. I mean, excuse me, the right, the pistol casing, things like that, where it fell on the street, where his body was, where you know the position where the police was. All this they can recreate within that module of that software. Of the module of that software. Now, William, it sounds like to me that this software 
is a necessity in this nation right now. Absolutely. Now, Absolutely. we're not only we, – we've talked before about the federal part of it, the Department of Justice, but the FBI deal. It, this sounds like something that is a very unique piece of software on its own right. It stands on its own merit. Absolutely. This, when you're talking about folks saying, well, I don't know if this happened or that happened or something made up, something fabricated, this software seems to bring accountability and specifics. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is critical in law enforcement and even in the situations we're dealing with right now, not only now, but the other cases, not only of African-Americans dying in our streets, this is a tool that can be used to definitely uh, answer some questions. Absolutely. I mean, because we're, 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 when it really boils down is that we have to have the evidence. There's, I mean, all the whole crime scene, there's evidence there that, that really lays out what happened, what transpired. So you don't want to go off somebody's information or somebody's word. You want that information. You want to gather it. You want to catalog it. You want to cre- create as much or get as much information there and load it into the system. That way, Officers can see it. Nothing is lost. Nothing. That's what. That's what. That critical. is what is is key. Is key. Nothing's lost. There, if there's photos, it's taken there. It's uploaded. If there's you know anything, anything cataloged evidence that we have the evidence associated with it cataloged. It may be in a bag someplace, but we know it. We've taken a photo of it. Here it is. It's all in the case. The implementation of this software would be. The IRP six men who created this software to implement this, and it adjusts to whatever existing software system is in place. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. That is correct. So others, others. I mean, right now, law enforcement at different levels have have their own record management systems that they're managing, kind of like catalogs. It's kind of kind of like a library, if you will. This. Is a, would actually work with that. They can actually start cataloging, bringing some of that information in. But you know what? This is the thing I want to throw in. We've talked about several parts of the system, but this, this right here is one that is critical. I mean it's one that's been worked on the probably one of the most because it has so many features. Every police officer, every detective is going to roll to a scene, and they're looking there. Trying to look through, you know, a magnifying glass for these little bits and pieces of information, little bits and pieces of evidence that that you know will go to the case and help prove either well, a man's man innocence or a man's well, guilt. Ladies and gentlemen, the IRP six need to be set free from prison now. They have been wrongfully convicted, and we are asking President Obama to grant clemency to these men, patriots of America that stood at Ground Zero. And said, not on our watch, let's embrace the entrepreneur's spirit and create a software to keep the homeland safe. And now that we're not only saying the nation is kept safe, communities are kept safe. Local neighborhoods can be kept safe by this software. We're going to ask you to go out to change.org and search IRP6, sign our petition asking for the president to take action. And I'll tell you right now, these men, again created this software with one purpose in mind, to keep the homeland safe. Dave Zapolo, Demetrius Harper, David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Gary Walker. We seek justice, and we seek it now. We'll see you next time on AJC Radio.
Let's take another look at that unprovoked police brutality. The reason that man is being assaulted by the police is because of what he has in his hand. He's holding a professional-grade video camera. Since the Rodney King beating was caught on an amateur video camera, American police officers have known video cameras are their worst enemies. They will do anything they can to stop you from legally videotaping how they handle their responsibility to serve and protect you. So this police commander has decided that the correct response to that man shooting video is to grab him and smash his head into a parked Volvo. Irvin Leon Edwards is a 38-year-old Louisiana man, or I should say was a 38-year-old Louisiana man. And in 2013, he and his girlfriend were arguing at a gas station. So somebody called the cops on them. Now, when the cops arrived, the couple had already stopped fighting, but that wasn't enough for the cops. So they started questioning Edwards about his sagging pants. And it just so happens that Edwards was in a place in Louisiana that recently banned saggy pants. So they arrested him. Let that sink in. They arrested him. They arrested him for saggy pants. And Edwards' girlfriend begged the officers as they arrested him. She said, look, just don't don't tase him, don't get too physical with him or anything because he has high blood pressure and he has some mental issues. So just, just you know, a warning here. Don't, don't, don't do that. Well, um, the cops didn't really listen. What you're about to see is what the cops did to Edwards when they already had him restrained in jail. Now, as you're watching this, keep an eye out for the taser, which one of the officers has pressed to Edwards virtually the entire time. When you see something like that, you think, how could it possibly be the case that so many people were so stupid? There were six dudes in the room. And they just walked out. His body went limp like halfway through him being stunned. You notice that, right? Because he kept getting stunned. Which, by the way, is probably one of the reasons why he was squirming, because you were stunning him. There were like five dudes in on him, he's being stunned, so he's squirming. And what do you, what do you expect to happen if you're stunning a guy? So they just, they leave. They, he goes limp, his body's limp, he's laying in the, on the floor in this incredibly awkward position. Obviously he's not doing it for comfort. And they just leave. His body's limp, they leave. They let him sit there in the same position for nine minutes. Finally, one of them, nobody's rushing, nobody's trying to help. 